Welcome to the Little Red Village podcast, produced by Little Red Fashion. CEO Jonathan Joseph and head historian Rachel Elspeth Gross are about to take you on a journey through the ins and outs of fashion, tugging at the threads of how it all works, straight from the people who make it happen. Let's join them for today's episode. Benson Roberts is a fashion designer and entrepreneur who has been working in the apparel industry for almost 40 years. His work is celebrated, awarded, and has been seen on the covers of magazines, on fancy red carpets, on musicians who are household names. He founded the Detroit Fabric Company, does beautiful custom design work, teaches apparel design at the collegiate level. He also co-hosts the podcast, Advanced Fashion Disruption, with Megan Somerville, a past guest here and one of Little Red's favorite humans. Together, they are working to make fashion better. And Benson has a lot of lessons to teach, some truly valuable stories to share that we can all learn from. I don't know that I've ever had a friend as generous as joyfully giving as Benson is. The fashion industry has a reputation for being cruel, harsh, mean-spirited. And unfortunately, in this industry we love, there are a lot of examples of people and companies doing dirty deeds or taking advantage of others, not to mention any of the unpleasant things that really aren't the focus of this series or appropriate for it. But Benson, whose heart must be compared only to things which are majestic and pure, has dedicated his career to being the antithesis of all of these bad actors and destructive forces. Benson has overcome obstacles which would have devastated anyone, but no matter what challenge he is faced with, he has this wonderful, constant presumption that he can make a difference, that his work will change the world for the better. And then he does the really hard work. There are many things about my dear friend Benson which make him a joy to behold and a constant source of inspiration. Having a conversation with him feels like the sun is shining for you specifically. And today, we'd like to share that spot in the sunshine with you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's saucy episode of the Little Red Village podcast. I am your fearless leader, Jonathan Joseph, joined by my comrade in arms, Rachel Elspeth Gross, and our amazing saucy guest today, Benson. Hi, Benson. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good to meet you both. We're so thrilled to have you here today. We really love getting to talk to people who have interesting experiences, and you've got so much information. Your career has covered so much. You're a designer, you're a teacher, you're an educator, you're an advocate. Now you have a a podcast where you're doing some really important criticism and conversational work. What do you think your job is? How would you how would you label yourself? I, I am the most loved and hated man in fashion. That should be my official label and it should go on my business card. I'm primarily a, a designer and a creative director and an apparel manufacturer. Those are the things that I've always done. In the last decade I've added multiple titles to my resume. I am a fabric converter, I am a jobber, I am a sourcing agent. I teach at university. The podcasts are critical critiques and also educational. They come off sometimes as very biting and very acidic, but that's, I, I'm, I'm from Detroit and we are straight shooters because <laughs> I, I grew up here in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and foolishness was was a death wish. So we, we learn to communicate clearly and succinctly and bluntly, and we tell it the way it is. And some people don't care for so I don't want to say I'm a critic. I am making critical critiques, and we are also educating. 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that is an important distinction. When I look at the industry, and this is an industry, you know, the three of us love, that the people who listen to us talk about it love, right? I do feel like there's an absence of critique. And I think that what you're providing, I don't know, I grew up in Los Angeles. <laughs> I went to college in Chicago. I, I, you know, direct communication has always made the most sense to me. I, I've never been good at, you know, pretending <laughs> or making it sound fluffy. So I completely understand. <laughs> Yeah, my mother's a New Yorker, so you get one flavor. It's direct, direct yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, typically when I have an opinion, it barrels at you like a train. And if you're in the way of it and not prepared, it may knock you over. And that's not to say that you didn't get a little toot toot on the horn as it was coming on yes, in. Because sure yes, did. But I think directness these days... That describes a New Yorker perfectly. And I will tell you, back in the 80s, when New Yorkers <laughs> would find out that I was from Detroit, New Yorkers would step back. So Detroiters... Detroiters have, a pretty, <laughs> Detroiters I, I have a, pretty, a pretty intense vibe, and and we're very forward. And, I yeah, like yeah. it. I like it. The New Yorker in me, it's like namaste, you know, like the New Yorker in me recognizes <laughs> the Detroit in you and or the New York in other cities. I love directness, and I think in fashion to the point, you know, there's so much hype. Everyone wants to be everyone else's hype man or just, you know, this collection's great. Every collection's great. Great, great, great. And then by the time you're done, all the terms are diluted and overused. And, and it's as not fun. Fern and you need said, critique. You need, no. you need You need critical thinking. And Fern Malice has very clearly stated that Project Runway or the Project Runwayification of fashion has been detrimental to it. And you add to that social media platform where somebody can put up an ill-conceived garment that's poorly sewn with threads hanging and no hem, and all of their friends tell them just how amazing they are. Mm -hmm. And that is problematic because when a person actually thinks that they have it all going on, they never work to better themselves. I've been doing this for 30-something years professionally, and I will learn until the day I die, which is what keeps me engaged with fashion. Uh, Jonathan and I completely identify with that. We are both autodidactic type people. I think anybody who is a creative person who like can live that way, you know, needs to. And I mean, I guess this relates back to the confrontational thing. Like I prefer my favorite humans are the ones that will stand up to me and tell me when I'm wrong, because I don't want to be just told, you know, yes, that's great. And I would like our industry to you know, be willing to hear but maybe things aren't perfect always. I think that's a step. Absolutely. Towards- I don't like yes people and I don't like no people. What I like is why people. Let's talk well, about I will why. Tell you, I, I, in, in my business, I am very often on purpose the no person. And it's very frustrating to potential clients. And it's very frustrating to my staff who often have good ideas. And I've, I finally figured out how to tell them why I am the no person. I said, we're all let, all of these ideas are like balloons. And I am going to shoot everyone until we find the one or a dozen that do not come down when I shoot them. Those are the ones for us to pursue. So saying no is just extreme critical thinking. I've done this so long that... It sounds like a strength test. It, 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 it is absolutely a strength. You don't mm-hmm. want to put a boat in the ocean that is going to sink. I don't want to invest my time or energy into a project that is going to sink. And if I can find a reason that it won't work, we need to find it now. Let the client know that, that they need to make these changes because until we know why it won't work, I can't I can't educate the client to understand the changes that could help it work. And then sometimes, quite honestly, people who have fallen in love with their genius ideas, it's just never going to work. It's it's just not. Yeah, God, God bless you. You want to spend money on it and try 
you're going to have to find somebody who doesn't have an <gasps> system that allows them to take money for something that they know never market, never sell. Like, who the heck are you going to sell a three-cup draw to? I mean, honestly, maybe you met one woman in your life with a third breast. This is not <laughs> something that you want to build a lot of Find, find all the uh, right, best right. Yeah, no, yeah. this, is, this is how you would do that so when i'm a nomad it's on purpose and it's just critical thinking which i love new yorkers and chicagans for i lived in texas that's where i met megan somerville my mm -hmm. podcast collaborator and texas is so we sweet and so polite they are not nearly as horrible as their legislature is they're actually pretty pretty decent live and let live at least in central and western Texas. Eastern Texas gets a little more Alabama and Louisiana vibe to it, but even even they've come a long way. But Texans are not critical thinkers. They are emotional thinkers. They will tell you that something feels wrong or that doesn't feel like it will work. And, and they literally, they express their thoughts as feelings. And so I had to learn to navigate emotional thinking. You know, I remember a certain council meeting when we were trying That's to get them to, to pass an act to allow us to make a, a fashion incubator, an Austin fashion incubator, which we finally succeeded with and got it to the turn of like 130 million. And one of the council, I was presenting basic numbers, just basic numbers. This, this is this. And she said, well, it doesn't feel good. And, and you know, the Detroiter in me wanted to, I took a deep breath, whack-a-mole, whack took a very deep breath and, and installed all of my Texas politeness child chips and said, ma'am, I know it, it doesn't feel good. It feels so bad, in fact, that I stayed up last night crunching numbers so I could find a number that would help us all to feel better. And that, that allowed her to receive That's the so information. But like the Detroiter and me bristled at that. Mm -hmm. I love that I've come home. Where, where, no, but that's important. This is a vital creative skill we're really talking about. You know, as a podcast focused on, on, on really like actionable things for our listeners, I think teaching children and finding ways to show them how to navigate creatively because fashion is such an inherently collaborative field period at any point in its existence, the cultivation of the skill of being able to do exactly what you did in Texas, where you said, okay, I feel this way, but also we're in this environment and I have to do this this way to get to the end result, which is the goal. Even if the steps there, as we've said many times before, Rachel, you know, isn't linear and it doesn't. And, and that's a, an inner you know, example I, of that. I, 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 think I, I tell my students so important. university that the most important thing that they will have in their arsenal, the most important fiscal tool they will have, the most important currency is not money. It is relationships. And the nature of a relationship is that two people or three people or 10 people or or three billion people have to be able to and willing to relate to each other. I think that all of us believe that our experience of reality is the experience of reality. And I have come to realize that even in my closest friendships and my marriage, each of those two people in those relationships is actually having an entirely different experience. And it doesn't mean that either one of those experiences is not valid and worthwhile, but they are two different relationships happening. And and when you're really lucky and in sync, you get to these areas where the things that are common and similar actually overlap. And so you're having the same relationships, differently shaded, but you're on the same page for a while. Mm -hmm. But then they rotate out and, and divorce and bands breaking up and friends having fights. All of that is about people not being able to relate in those moments where the synchronicity is off. 
you know, black folks say. So that's an interesting. And, I wanna... and I wish that all of the the beige folks would listen to that and take that seriously. You do you, boo. You do you. That's permission. You go ahead and be you right now. I'm I'm not getting you. I'm not agreeing with you. And in fact, you're making me angry. But I'm going to allow for you to be you right now. And I'm going to go do me. And we'll get back together later. When I was in fashion design school, I had in a, for my draping and my pattern design teacher, it was both the same woman and she had been a pattern designer for Issei Miyake. And so she was exacting in a way that I had never experienced. Both of my parents are college professors. I've always gotten along with my teachers. But this particular woman, lovely human being, was hated by the department because she did not give A's. It did not happen. You could not get an A in her class. I got a B plus because I showed up to every single class and I, I kind of like your story about meeting in the middle in Texas. I had respect for her. And so I did it her way. And I will always be able to drink because of this, right? Like I will always be able to, you know, I know my own body well enough. My dress form matches my body. Like I can create something, but that's because I was willing to compromise. Like you were willing to compromise. And that's something I don't yeah, see yeah, enough you know you in, in our industry. Being that in the, meeting in the middle. In, uh, intersectional. You know, we need to all meet at an intersection and have a have have a white a white wine together or some chocolate milk kits and sit down and really get to know each other and find out what we have in common and then celebrate what we don't have in common. It's okay that you do things very differently. How interesting. How textured that makes the world. But you happen to hit on, Rachel, one of my pet peeves about academia. I despise teachers who are known and who are who pride themselves in never giving the A. They are terrorists of creativity. Mm. I tell be my worst. Be worst. I tell my students on day one, look, I will never be obsessed with your grades and your letters and your numbers. I'm going to give you a choice today. I hope that you mm-hmm. make the one that is most beneficial to you. Do you want me to teach you like you were all sponges that are expected to absorb everything I say and then vomit it back out in the way that I formatted for you? Or do you actually want to learn? And of course, all of the kids are very happy to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I tell them, all of you have an A right now. Every single one of you has an A. Your job this semester is not to jump through hoops to please me. It's to do the work and show up enough to keep the A. And a university told me that, right. that I, 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 yeah. I, well, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that because, I mean, the, the triangle and the height and the blah, blah say that a certain amount will fail and a certain amount nonsense. will get seized. And I said, okay, I, I'm going to stop you. You all hired me in here because of my experience in the fashion world, my, my 30 years experience. You've decided that while I do not have a degree from any institution, that my 30 years, the fact that I've developed textiles, the fact that I've written published papers, the fact that I've done every potential job, that, that makes me better than a doctor's. I mean, I have 30 years real experience, 40 actually. So what I'm going to tell you is that if you worked for me in my factory as a trainer, and you came to me and told me that 10% of my people are going to fail, 10% of the people that you're teaching yeah. are, are going to be able to sew squares if I'm lucky, maybe they should be left to cut things out, 20% of the people will be able to hem a tablecloth, and only 5% of the people will be able to do the job that I need them to do, I would fire you. Your job is to well, teach. Okay, no so one this should is another fail your class. No one should be tormented into trauma to get the B plus that should have been an A. I don't know. Maybe it's the, a little math. Well, well, no, I, 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 the prevailing I idea is that you. putting that kind of tension on a student makes them perform better, but this is not 
physics. This is not engineering. This is a creative process. Yes. Even quantifying a creative process to give it a degree in the first place is bizarre to me. Absolutely. People, under that kind of stress, it does not help them. They get ulcers. They quit the program. They leave the program. They don't learn. They become so obsessed with trying to raise their number and raise their letter that they stop learning. Although in your case, you see that you never have forgotten. Well, so. I think, like I said, masochism. <laughs> no, and I'm, my parents are, I grew up in an academic background. I have, I was supposed to have a PhD by the time I was 25. I'm never, ever, ever, ever. I am very anti-academia. I don't know. I just kind of, I don't know. From what you're saying, one of the things that I think is really important is that there does not have to be a loser and a winner. That in this industry, in any place, any time, and Jonathan and I come back to this point like all the time, that if by working together, me and brand A both do well, and then because me and brand A are working together, brand C, B, and D get business, and then the whole community can be uplifted, who loses? Why does there have to be a loser? Man, I don't understand that. We are looking at um, that being odd in what is a patriarchal society. And the basis of patriarchy is competition. Folks often ask me why I consider myself a feminist. Do I think women are better? I said, no, actually, a feminist is for everybody. But the feminine principle is cooperation. And when you have a cooperative society or a cooperative culture, nobody loses because everyone is given a hand when they need it. Everyone works equally hard. Everyone is equally valued. And you don't have the adrenaline driving you to be the winner. Because when there's a winner, that means that there are a lot of mm -hmm. people who are not the winner. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I hate that. Well, it's, it it's seems unnecessary. Why we're Even on, so yeah. hard to restore matriarchy or fraternity, where, where we all get to be equal and seen as equal and where cooperation is the standby, not the exception. We always want to know, Benson, do you have like a first fashion memory? Like the first time you remember putting something on like as a kid or a young uh, person or... Or like Iris Apfel will talk about the first brooch she haggled for. You know what I mean? It, like that early fashion moment, that thing that kind of catalyzed it for you, even in a way you maybe didn't realize I, I at that time. I will tell you that I, I probably have. I, I remember my grandmother's thick color and the neon green leisure suit she was wearing when they brought me home from the hospital. So I was always aware of, of, of tutorial things. My first actual fashion moment was probably when I was three, and I began creating dresses for my sister's Barbies out of Kleenex. So this is something that I've always done. It's always been natural. I graduated to cutting up dad's used socks, then his good socks, then his ties. When I was in third grade, I cut up his Pierre Cardin silk shark pins. And this, by the way, is, is, is following me cutting out the back of the brocade couch. And I thought, well, it's at the back of the couch. The back of the couch is against the wall. They will never notice being a child it didn't occur to me that when the barbies showed up wearing the couch fabric my mom recently <laughs> for my birthday sent me a package that included the last of the square i cut out of that fabric which just made that she kept it all these years for me so so i, I cut up dad's oh, um, no. food and i spent the summer uh, between third grade and fourth grade or was it between fourth and fifth it doesn't matter it's all long time ago grounded grounded now i we lived on an acre and yeah. a half we had a pool all the kids came to our house but not being able to run through the woods 
not being able to go through the parkland seemed horrible. Now, in retrospect, it wasn't a bad summer. When school started, my parents sat me down and they said, we would like to explain something to you, son. And I thought, well, if they're going to just kill me and throw me in a hole now, because they probably figured out that, that <laughs> I have cut up a few more things this summer. And they said, we did not ground you for what you made. We did not ground you for the beautiful clothes you made for your sister's Barbies. We grounded you for your lack of respect of your father's belongings. And we have come to realize that we are as much to blame. You were obviously hungry to have things to create with. So going forward, every Saturday, we're going to give you a $5 allowance and take you to any free fabric stores of your choice. And in the 70s, a $5 allowance was like having $100 in a fabric store. You could get a wonderful broadcloth for 12 cents a yard. So they were very supportive. And, and I did. Once I had my own stash... I was no longer interested in cutting up whatever looked like it could be made into a gorgeous Barbie dress, or I was sewing my own clothes by the time I was in sixth grade. So it's something that I've always. Do you remember the first thing you? Do you remember the first thing you sewed that of you wore? Corduroy pants. I wanted corduroy pants, and I wanted Not easy. Uh, I wanted wide whale corduroy pants, and I wanted bigger bell bottoms than I could yes. buy. So I made mm -hmm. a pair of corduroy pants. I was in fifth grade, and I hand sewed them. Oh my goodness! I love it. Uh, they were. They what were color a, were they? I have to ask. Interestingly enough, it's the color that finally made its way back into my purview and interest. They were a gold, a a, a golden curry. It was nineteen. It was like nineteen seventy four or five. So yeah. So I mean, that was the that was bad and burnt orange and and uh, avocado were all colors that were very popular for us. And then I, I used the remnants of that in the 10th grade. I still had it. And in the 10th grade, I wanted to take sewing courses, sewing one. And they told me that that was a girl's course. This is 1979. And they were of the opinion that I wanted to take sewing so I could be in a class with all girls so that I could flirt with them. I think that's a plot. Now, <laughs> of course, you know, in and, and, and 10th grade, I wasn't openly a queer person, but I assured them that that was not the case. And so they told me that I had a week to make a project. And if the project was good enough, they would let me take sewing one. So I went home and cut up the rest of the corduroy fabric and made myself a three-piece John Travolta disco. I love that. that was I mean, it was it was very Susie Quattro punk rock disco, which is sort of where I was at the time. Oh, Please oh, tell me they, they let you me in. Tailoring. She skipped me all the way to the advanced class. Yes. And... and, oh. and, and she became a mentor. Her her wife, of course, they weren't open about it, that was in the Air Force. And she became, she was my English teacher and gave me the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given. She said to me, she said, you know, you're very creative. And I know that you're not happy with who you are. You know, she was basically telling me, I know that you're in the closet. She said, what I want you to do is imagine the type of person that you want to become and begin acting as if you are that person. And I woke up, I woke up when I was I 20 or 21 and realized that I was the interesting person that I wanted to be. And in fact, my life was perhaps more interesting than I ever could have imagined. So some educators are brilliant. Now, Miss, Miss Bystek was wonderful. I went on to advanced tailoring, which was taught by a tailor, Mr. Wesolowski. And he, he was from the South, I, a Polish man from the South, very, very odd dichotomy there. But he would always tell the students, clip your thread. Please clip your thread. And I thought this old man needs to just get out of my face because I will clip my threads <laughs> when I'm done. I don't have time to stop. 
and clipped my threads. I'm on a roll until the day that my thread got caught up in the bobbin hook and ruined a perfectly placed invisible zipper. And now to this day, oh, that's hard. He came and looked at me and he said, I told you that one day you would rue the day that you didn't clip your threads, and that day is upon you. And I will tell you, Mr. Wesselowski's <sighs> voice still resonates every time I'm in a sewing machine, and I always oh. clip my threads. And in fact, my, my, the, mm-hmm. the folks that work with me are, are probably quite tired of me saying in a very deep Southern voice, please clip your threads. You will one day rue the day that you did not clip those threads. Oh, oh my God. That was the best Imagine. story I we've had yet on the podcast. For me personally, only, well, not only because, but because the way you said that was the same way one of my favorite mentors in English literature, who's unfortunately no longer with us, Dr. Robert P. Salser Jr., would always say, shield your ass, when he would turn on the lights after kind. watching uh, Southern, Shakespeare. Southerners are so... It was... Oh, it was the God. same energy, that same exact energy just shot through the through the computer at me. And I said, oh, and you know, my mom, oh, my mom is from she was born in Alabama, Birmingham, and she grew up in Tennessee and Kentucky. So I I am uh, a southern or a southern gentleman on my mom's side. I was I was raised well. So I really I really did bask in the warmth of living in New Orleans and in the warmth of this of the, of the Texas kindness. But the critical thinking was missing. And that eventually became crazy making. I did what I set out to do. We got the incubator built. Mm. That became a checkpoint on my resume, and it was time to bring all those skills home and try to do that here. And of course, I landed here just in time for COVID. Yay! We started Little Red Fashion during COVID. Oh, I, yeah, sometimes the universe throws a pivot. Oh, honey, this you just was have more to than go with it. My whole my whole business has collapsed. I've been dealing <laughs> with food instability, and uh, how I, I mean, I, I, me and millions of other people. I don't feel badly for myself about it. It's just. I told myself when it all started to fall apart, Benson, don't go crazy. Keep your stuff together and know that your only job until this is actually done is to survive. If you survive, you have all the tools you need to thrive again. And I'm I'm in the place I've had multiple clients reach out this week and I have things on my table again. So I have survived and it looks like I'm in the early process of thriving. And while I, I talk sometimes about moving back to New York or moving back to Los Angeles, where there's a apparel culture that is thriving, I know in the long term, neither one of them will continue to thrive because of the cost of doing business in both of those places. And I came here to be instrumental in turning Detroit into the apparel manufacturing hub. And I was working with Jeffrey Aronson on that project for a moment. He's a wonderful, and he's from Detroit. So we were working on this multi, multi, multi-million dollar initiative. And I, I guess he got politicked out and then that collapsed because, but I, I'm, I'm in the process of, of, of putting together a proposal to take to the city and say, look, you're either going to play it or you're going to let me go. I will tell you, I have trade partners in LA that would leave tomorrow if we could get certain things enabled here like in factory piecework, which is always better for the sewer if they're skilled, and if we could help with tax abatements to get them to move, because New York, as you know, is hemorrhaging money. New York, the state of New York, the city of New York, grants so much money to keep the apparel industry alive that it's, it's actually a little bit scary. And Los Angeles is bleeding but beginning to hemorrhage. And Detroit has, we've depopulated by 1.3 million people. We have all the space in the world. Real estate is relatively inexpensive. I, I've been in a, 
uh, a 1,300 square foot apartment and a 1,300 square foot retail space combined, they were costing me only $1,600 a month, which, which, which I, I, but yeah, I you couldn't could, do that in I any, could, any of those cities. That in most There's of the no country. way. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I want to do right. that because I want to create jobs here in my hometown. And, and when I left, that's literally what I told people at a Bob Evans when they said, why are you really leaving? I said, well, besides the whole divorce, broken heart thing, I have spent my entire life, 25, I had spent my entire life trying to get fashion to be a viable a path to success in Detroit, and they've done nothing but, a, but abandon me and betray me. Oh, so dramatic. You know? And I'm leaving to get the skills that I need to one day bring home to create that apparel culture. So that's what I'm here for. That's awesome. So before we wrap up, we have to ask about oh, books. My goodness. We love fashion books. Um, the first book I want to talk to you about is Kids Can Do It series. I love children. I love teaching children. Okay. And kids can do it. It's a book called Simply Sewing by Judy Ann Sadler. It is a wonderfully comprehensive okay. book with patterns that children can hand sew and with projects that they can also learn to do basic machine stitching with. Light, light reading for me is apparel manufacturing stone product mm -hmm. analysis. No, I mean, I, there's some textbooks of mine I, I, that I find. I, I literally have, you know, this is my this is my light reading in the loo or before bed or when I'm waiting to see a doctor. And I read this type of book mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. not only to edify my knowledge base, but because I actually enjoy reading and understanding and expanding my mind about the thing that I'm passionate about. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I was torn between the shoe book and the hat book. And I decided that the hat book was the one I would off the shelf. Oh, the Gina Conti is going to be so happy. Friends and Traditions yes, by Madeline is. Ginsburg, forward by Hardy Ames. And it is it is a brilliant book about hats. <gasps> yeah. Oh, it's, my God. And it goes all it? the way back. It's got hats all the way back to the Middle Ages. It's a beautiful book. And we're talking about fun books. This is from this is from the show that was at the Metropolitan. Met Gala show. Yeah, it was the Met Gala uh, show. Superhero. Superhero. Yeah, it, it, it is, it is a, a fun, amazing book with superheroes in it and fashion that is superhero inspired. And I, I think you can buy this much less expensively than I paid for it because I had to have an original. I think kids would love that book. Then I have from the Toshin collection. This is a, this is a, it's not abridged. It's got everything that the double collection had. It's just printed in smaller volume. All in one volume. Uh, yeah. It features pretty much everything in the Kyoto Museum Costume Institute. And it's got fashion. Yeah, I have, I have the large version too, yes. So this is, this is the, what I like to call the mobile version. <laughs> this is the one that I can take with me. I go through this all the time because it just, it eases my mind. It thrills my creativity. It's a meditation. Oh, it's like meditation. It makes you feel like the world might and be okay. And finally, yeah. It's, oh, I'll. I feel compelled to get my my current obsession. I have the show. This is Madison's yeah, direct yeah. shoulder measure vest system. I will. I you will have to send me a screenshot um, and it's like a photo, please. At one time, they were asking seven thousand seven hundred and forty-five dollars for this book. They, they marked it all the way down to where I bought. I, I actually didn't buy it for thirty-five. I bought it for eighty-five, and it was a steal. This was published Sometimes in nineteen oh six, and it has best from mm -hmm. that era with point-to-point. -point, looking for one of the with point-to-point -point instructions to get a perfect fit every time. Oh, that's, okay. I am, yeah, I need that. 
I wonder if anyone has scanned it. There's libraries it is possible, books that are in the there public are, domain, especially in there Canada. Are so I wonder if there's a digital. They may not have their hands on it. I ah. actually have a lead on the Madison Direct Shoulder Measure jacket. I, I may, oh, oh, I may oh, go oh. into poverty if if they they will let it go. So these are the books that I, I mean, brought to talk to you all about. Thank you. That is such treasure. Oh, I mean, like Kyoto book. I, I mean, I, I mean, it's yeah. My whole, I don't know what I would do without books. And that's one of the things that Jonathan and I, I think bonded on really early is that I'm currently obsessing over Hold it on Swan. Yeah, Racine's costume history. I have history. three copies of that. It's a brilliant book. <laughs> one of my favorite, yeah. Do you, do it's you just one that I have to keep out. Do you all have books that you buy? That you buy Mail me one. I don't have because it. it's a good book, and I, 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 I always say I need away. to stop loaning books because I forget who borrowed them, and I probably have more books that I've loaned out that'll never yeah. come back. So now the books that I love, I always buy multiple. If I see a copy that's affordable and in good shape, I buy it because I'm going to loan it out and forget who has it. Yeah, that happens to me. Or I take different notes in the margins of different copies. And I'm a note taker you know, in the margins. You're hitting on one of my favorite secrets. I read the notes that are in margins of books that I buy because they are they are very often more informative than the book subject itself. I had another book that was published in 1920 that's a it's a it's a Bible of apparel textiles. It's like 1,500 pages. It weighs 30 pounds. I I, I just could not find it. But it it has textiles and fabrics and techniques in it that we no longer use, and that is something that I'm 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 slowly devouring, so that when I teach textiles next, I have even a deeper knowledge. Like I said, it is a learning that keeps me engaged with fashion. Every few years, I can say I know everything about it, and then somebody comes up with a new machine or somebody comes up with a new textile, and I'm right back to learning all over. And I love that process. Work should be fun. I feel like work is play. I say that on this show. And I will tell you, uh, people are better. I I have taken pauses from my career sometimes for years. Uh, Once because I was dying, got over that. But I've taken pauses of a year or two because it stopped being enjoyable. And it's been a rule of thumb for me that I realize I hate a job. I quit a job. The moment I can be in the middle of a shift, I will hand them all of my money as a waiter and let them keep whatever tips are there. Because the minute I realize I'm hating my job, I am no longer a good employee, and I'm not doing a service to the customers, myself, or my boss. And that is a rule of thumb. And when I hated my own job, I quit on myself, right in the middle of my shift. So I think it's important to be able to have joy in our work, don't you? I think it's essential. I think in a realistic way and an existential way, you are absolutely right, Jonathan. I think it is essential. But sadly, societally, it is not essential. We raise children to be workers. We raise That's children. true. Oh, for sure. Uh, although we Not are finally, uh, for the first time in over a hundred years, in a in a market where the, the worker has has the leverage because of the pandemic. So I'm hoping that I love young people refusing to go and do jobs that pay nothing, that mean nothing, that are are bad for the environment. I love that they're doing that. I've been offered. I, I'm a little bit desperate for money Same. right now, but I won't do a job that I can't get behind ethically, and I won't do a job. You're offering me really $12 an hour to come and be the quality control hand stitcher sewer. Well, Taco Bell is paying 17 for taking orders. So, uh, and, and the reason that I think sewing pays so little, Rachel, you'll understand this, is because society has always viewed sewing as a woman's work. Yes. Yes. And I have so many things to I, say I, about I, that. I, I, you know, I, here, I, I want to invite both of you 
to our podcast. We, yes, we, are, we, are, we, we have, yeah, we have subjects planned out, but I, I, I know Megan will be very excited about it. And you should come to our podcast and maybe we'll end up doing a little a little series the for this podcast. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, sort of like sort of like when, when the comic <laughs> books put a story through twenty books to get you find one. Been enjoyable. You are both yeah. brilliant. This was an amazing episode of the Little Red Village podcast here at Little Red Fashion. Benson, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a joy to really have you impart your wisdom and some amazing stories about not only the power of fashion and fashion education, but really how to charter a path forward as an industry in a way that really aligns with all the work that we're doing here at Little Red Fashion to empower the next generation of fashion leaders and creatives. So thank you so much. And listeners, thank you so much. Make sure that you are following us on Instagram at Little Red Fashion Co. And if you haven't yet, sign up for our mailing list at littleredfashion.com. And lastly, if you love this episode, as much as we love making it, you should definitely give us a four-star review. That's a wrap for today. Visit us at littleredfashion.com, where you can find the show notes and transcripts of Little Red Village podcast episodes on the blog. And if you enjoyed it, give us a four-star review on whatever platform you're listening through. We're on a mission to empower the next generation and build a community of supportive fashion lovers families, educators, and professionals like you to help creative kids thrive. Thanks for joining Jonathan and Rachel today. And remember, fashion is for everyone.